The internet runs on advertising. Advertising is subject to fraud, but then again, so is every system of online transactions. The amount of money lost in electronic payments fraud and e-commerce scamming is probably much greater than what is lost due to advertising fraud. So, why do we keep covering advertising fraud on Software Engineering Daily? Well, more of our audience needs to know about advertising fraud. Few people realize how much fraud there is in online advertising. In previous episodes of Software Engineering Daily, we have explained how advertising works, how the advertising fraud system works, why it's absurd and disgraceful, and why nobody talks about advertising fraud. We also cover advertising fraud because I find it interesting and sometimes hilarious myself. These are the same reasons that I invited Shalin Dar to speak at the third Software Engineering Daily meetup. Shalin has been on the show twice before, and he will be on again in the future. He's made it a full-time job to expose ad fraud and discuss it, and he gives a great presentation on the topic in this episode. He presented this at the third meetup, and it was great because he discussed some of the things that he witnessed as, you know, early on he was... He was kind of a black hat. His One of his earliest experiences in the advertising fraud space was doing this advertising fraud, and he talks about this openly. So he, you know, he's got experience in the space. You know, he stumbled into it. It's not like he set out to initially be a fraudster. But this is, this is what a lot of people in the ad fraud space are doing, is they stumble into it, and they realize all of a sudden that they're working at a company that is committing advertising fraud, because there's basically no risk for engineers who work at these places. It's certainly a lot less risky to do fraud in advertising than it is to do fraud in something like a stock exchange, but it can be just as lucrative. And in this episode, Shalin dives into that a little bit. So I hope you enjoy it. Hi, everybody. My name is Shalin. I am an ad fraud researcher and consultant, and basically my time gets spent researching how ad fraud is done and figuring out ways for ad tech companies to prevent becoming victims of it. So fraud is not something new to any business, but fraud in advertising particularly is very interesting. So fraud in any industry, any realm lives in the shadows. It doesn't make itself known. And that's one thing with fraud counting, fraud estimates, fraud detection, is it's actively doing everything it can to not be detected and not be counted. And fraud, when you speak to people that actually commit ad fraud, none of them will be wearing their black hoodies in a basement and be typing on computers. They are, you know, people with families. They live in suburbia. They just look like perfectly normal people, and you would never guess that they were involved in ad fraud. It always starts out, the justification is, it's more of a means to an end, rather than I am starting out on this fraudulent path. I guess the way you could look at it is, starting out shoplifting by stealing a pack of gum because you don't have any change on you, and if that becomes a habit that you constantly shoplift, then you become a thief. But in that one instant, that's how they always get on this path is this is easy money. I can do it from home. And eventually they build businesses out of it. So my focus now is advertising fraud. It happened by a random series of events. I studied economics. I went to work for an investment bank straight out of school, ended up in advertising fraud. 
The reason I think advertising fraud is important is because advertising fuels a lot of our global economy. Consumer culture is built on advertising, and as long as fraud in any industry is part of the fringes, kind of stays okay, but when it becomes part of the mainstream foundation of any industry, like we saw with the financial crash, that's when we start causing problems. So with any type of media, there was always audits, newspapers, magazines, billboards, radio ads, TV ads. There were physical ways to count the production of those media types. So you could count the number of newspapers printed, you could count the number of magazines printed, where billboards were, and that started to change with this thing called the internet, where everybody had computers and it could be done digitally. So the trajectory in advertising was, right now we look at our computers, we're being plastered with ads everywhere. We're focused now is how do we reach the right people at the right time? Before it was, everybody's watching TV at 6 p.m. How do we send them the right message? So that's what gave rides to ad agencies. And I don't know if anybody here has watched Mad Men, but that was the big thing, because the only thing they had up against their competition as an advertiser was the creative that you were using, the story that you were telling, the commercial that you made, the you know magazine ad that you made, whatever that was. So then with digital, the supply and demand kind of got screwed up because you could create infinite supply without any real overhead costs. With newspapers or billboards, you physically had to go print a million extra issues of a newspaper to sell that much more advertising. And with computers, it was some server has to log a million extra clicks, and that's all it really took to sell more advertising. So that started with the cost per click model. Then we transitioned into what's called the CPM model, and CPM is cost per mill. So all digital advertising is sold on a cost per mill, which is cost per thousand ads. So every thousand ads has a rate of, let's say, you know, in the modern market, it's around $5, so every 1,000 ads costs $5, but of course you pay individually for every 1,000, so it'd be five cents, five tenths of a cent per actual individual ad. And so with digital advertising, you saw the original media publishers online like CNET and you know, download.com, AOL, those CPMs were $100 or higher because you were buying the same way that you were buying print media. Now you have CPMs that are half a cent, one cent CPM, and advertisers and agencies have jumped on it because they look at it as cheap media that they can buy eyeballs with, but it's actually just fake robotic visitors to sites where no actual humans go. And the reason that this whole traffic market, you can go out on the internet, and look up buying web traffic and buy anything you want. You can buy it based on time, you can buy it based on the number of visits. And that started because everybody started creating their own blogs. And now everybody had their own web properties. The only logical next step was how do we put ads on there? Because we want to reach people wherever they are on the internet. The advertising industry gave these people an opportunity to sell that ad space and sell those eyeballs. And now that those small sites had an avenue to sell the ad space, they wanted an avenue to also get more traffic. And nobody really questioned where the traffic was coming from. So the transition between these big media properties like New York Times or Huffington Post was they used to get deals with agencies on what's called a fixed deal. So you have two million 
users every month. We want to buy 10 million ad impressions this month for this fixed price. And it's a legitimate direct contract between the agency and the web publisher. Then that's what was based on demographics. So you would buy ad space on the New York Times financial page or the Washington Post sports page to focus on the type of demographic that visited that part of the site. Transition from that to what's called psychographics was targeting people wherever they are on the internet based on their behavior. So cookies based on the cookies that you have you know, in your profile, they could assume that you were this type of person interested in these types of products and so they could target you with a specific type of ad. And that's what gave rise to what's called programmatic advertising. And programmatic advertising is done through what's called ad exchanges. And you could basically put in a campaign. And instead of saying, I want to buy this website, you say, I want to buy these users. And these cookie profiles, I'm willing to pay this much CPM. And I want to buy them from 6 AM to 9 PM. It was basically just buying users instead of buying websites now. And so if you go into how this traffic model works, this is all a fraudulent publisher really needs to work out their business model. How much am I paying per click and how much money am I making on the ad space? So the CPM in this example is $2.50. The ads on the page, there's four ads on the page, you divide that by a thousand and you break even at one cent cost per click. And so if you can buy traffic at one cent per click, you can break even on this model, and we'll get to a later slide where you can see there's lots of subpenny traffic available. So this is how what's called RTB auction works, real-time bidding. It's a 100 to 150 milliseconds. That's how ads are sold online. The ad is not actually sold until you're loading the web page, and it's a second price auction. So the highest bidder wins, but they pay the price that the second highest bidder was willing to pay. That's the way the auctions are set up. So this information gets passed from the browser to the exchange, and then bidders come into play. And in this example, bidder four has the highest bid, but they get priced down to $2.52 because that's the second highest bid. So the thing that makes everything easy to understand within advertising fraud is the financial incentives that each piece has. So if you look at publishers, web properties, their financial incentive is to sell as much advertising space as possible. Advertisers want to derive the maximum value from their advertising dollars, whether that's sales with e-commerce or just brand awareness like Coca-Cola. Agency model for decades now has been, our client gives us a million dollars to spend on media. We charge a 10% management fee. And so we take $100,000, but we only make 10% of everything that we spend. So there was never an incentive to spend less or spend safely. You didn't make your money unless you spent everything that the client gave you. And that's just not with the agency. Even back to the CMO level at a brand, they never wanted to spend less money in a year because that meant the next year they would get a smaller budget. So there was always this push to spend, 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 spend in online advertising. Ad tech companies, which are the basically the pipes that allow the serving of ads, they make their money on servings of impressions. So they make their money on the quantity of ad impressions rather than the quality of ad impressions. So if you have 10 million impressions at a 10 cent CPM, or you have 1 million impressions at a dollar CPM, the advertiser's paying the same amount, but the ad tech companies are making way more money. 
Then there's bot detection companies, which also rose with the awareness of bot traffic online. So advertisers started paying bot detection companies to make sure their ads were not being served to bots. These are the financial models of the pieces in the industry. This is a screenshot of my conversation with a company called Izanga. And so this is the salesperson from Izanga telling me, you can buy IAS filter traffic at seven-tenths of a cent, forensic filter traffic at six-tenths of a cent, and all of these filters are bot detection companies. So they started selling traffic that was designed to pass bot detection filters. So now you have this arms race of people trying to detect the bots and people creating traffic that purposely goes around those filters. And as you can see in that basic model, we broke even at one cent cost per click, and this is sold at less than a cent per click. This is a company called HitLeap based in Hong Kong, and they sell traffic on a time basis. So you can buy 10,000 minutes of traffic for $9. You can buy 1 million minutes of traffic for $625. It is not hard to spin up a profitable web property with lots and lots of visitors. This is a very basic bot browser but you can see that it's going through the different sites that it's going to be visiting or referring from. So the, the website it's visiting is up top, Bitbin, and you can see it goes through all the referral sites. It changes its browser agent and changes its IP address just on the fly. So it looks very random. Then there's a company called Diabolic Labs, and their literal slogan on their website is software for devils. That's where, the, that's where those errors are pointed. Their slogan is software for devils. You download the software, and now you can create bot traffic from your computer to visit whatever site you want. And Diabolic Labs actually sells, you can do YouTube visits, SoundCloud plays, and basic just web browsing. These are like the two basic bot detection methodologies is you're either assuming everybody visiting the site is a human, and you are going to try to prove that they're a bot, or you assume that everybody is a bot and you're going to try to prove that there's a human. So those are the two basic methodologies. And depending on the company, the traffic vendors use that to figure out how to bypass them. And this is a screenshot from a bot detection company called Perimeter X. This is a very basic illustration of how somebody reverse engineers a bot detection filter. They send many sources of traffic to the filter, they see what comes out clean on the other end, and then they only sell that traffic as IAS filter or moat filter or whatever filter. And it doesn't cost them very much. The way they do this is they actually sign up for accounts with the bot detection companies as a website, and then they'll say, I'm a publisher, I wanna scan my traffic, and now they have direct data from these bot detection companies and shows them what's passing, what's not. And this is a very tough problem for bot detection companies to solve because you have a sales team that's pushing and pushing and trying to find new clients to sign up for the service. And they are incentivized to sign up everybody that comes knocking. And then you have an engineering team who's scrambling to figure out how they're constantly being reverse engineered. And it's by their own customers. Fraud, again, normally lives in the fringes with ad fraud, these are screenshots from LinkedIn of people selling IAS filter traffic and other types of traffic that you, know, you can monetize. These go-home 
search it on LinkedIn, you find it wherever you want. You can buy shopping traffic for e-commerce sites. It's all available. So obviously, this was not an easy pill to swallow for most people in ad tech or the advertising industry. So I got called a liar, a fear monger, all these types of things. So I said, all right, I'm just going to go prove it to you. So I created a site called eCeleb News. I bought it on GoDaddy for like $8.99. And I spun it up. And that's the screenshot from the site, eCeleb News. What I did was went out, found a traffic vendor from LinkedIn, one-tenth of a cent per click. And you can see the menu here is so filter IAS, filter moat, filter forensic, yes or no. And it's just a drop-down menu of what you want this traffic to do. So then I picked my target, which was an ad platform that said, we guarantee 100% fraud free. So I said, OK, you know, you're basing this on integral ad science, which is a widely adopted filter. And because they're so widely adopted across the advertising industry, they're a target for the traffic vendors. because. That's where they have an incentive to create the traffic for. I hosted it on GoDaddy, yeah. The $8 a month Linux hosting, yeah. So that was the one-tenth of a cent per click traffic. You can see you know, my user ID. And so based on the date, the number of clicks I bought, and how much I spent. And below is the Google Analytics screenshot. And you can see that 96% or 98% of these visitors are new users. That's a huge red flag with any website is the overwhelming majority of their traffic is new users instead of returning visitors. There should be some type of balance. Otherwise, you're what's referred to as an arbitrage site. This is screenshots from Google Analytics also, the breakdown of the service provider, so who's the internet connection, all cloud hosting companies, and the browser breakdown, which is anomalous to the general computer user market. <laughs> the thing is, they can fit. It doesn't even have to use Firefox. You're just passing something else. So I monetized this site, and I had four different companies, four different bot detection companies scanning what the quality of the traffic was. And because I was buying moat filter traffic, IAS filter traffic, double verify filter traffic, these major filters, I picked two that were the major filters that were the targets of the traffic and two agnostic ones that were smaller companies. Moat was one of the big ones, and this is 100% robotic data center traffic. They detected 38% bots. Oxford Bioconometrics is a much smaller company. They were obviously not a target of the, tar the traffic vendors. They detected 90% bots. And Integral Ad Science, which is the biggest bot detection company in the ad space, they detected 17% bots. And this is one-tenth of a cent per click data center traffic. And so the question is, how big is ad fraud? If detection is not very accurate, how big is ad fraud really? And so you can go through the advertising industry and see all the different estimates. So the IAB did a study with Ernst Young, and they said $8.2 billion a year is lost to ad fraud. The ANA, which is the Association of National Advertisers, the big brands that do advertising, their trade group, and White Ops, which is a bot detection company, they said $7.2 billion is lost to ad fraud. Yes? Uh, so people who are creating entirely fake traffic are clearly fraudulent so it would be fair to say the fraud detection companies are also fraudulent if they're selling the claim that they detect fraud is fair value. 
I think as far as they know, they're detecting fraud. That's the whole issue. You know, they're not purposely not detecting it, but. They don't, do they know that they're not detecting it? Yeah, they do. <laughs> I've tried to explain this. It's hard for, you know, Moat, actually, one of the companies that I wrote about in this report came to me and said, okay, help us improve. And so what we did was went out and said, okay, we're going to buy moat filter traffic on the market, send it to them, and see what they can learn to help improve their filter, rather than waiting to see what happens in the market, actually study it in an isolated um, environment and see how the traffic is behaving. So different companies have different responses to this. We had a video on Google that about two, three weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, hyper-growth of mobile apps. And the number we heard Mobile Monday hosted before, I can't say who it is. Yeah. We think it's 25%. I would say it's 25%, yeah. The WFA, which is the World Federation of Advertisers, I'm biased towards this report because I was a co-author, but our estimate was 30%, that 30% of web traffic is fraudulent and invalid. Now, why are these, I'm sorry, go ahead. You said something might be an arbitrage study. Yeah. What's the definition of that? So I've heard of ask.com, is considered an arbitrage study? So they, their revenue relies on them buying traffic. So they buy on a cost per click, they sell on a cost per mill, and they have to make sure that balances out where they make a profit. So they're in this constant, you know, profit margin game. So the reason that all these estimates are so different is the way that these estimates are done. So you have one sample of traffic. Nobody is scanning the entire market. They're taking one sample of traffic, they're taking one detection method, and then they extrapolate that to the entire industry. And so you have 8.2, 7.2, and we'll get to where this money goes. The easy misconception is all of that is going to quote-unquote fraudsters. But in reality, it's going to everybody that makes money on human traffic as well. So the money changes hands the same for fraudulent web traffic as it does for human web traffic. And the IAB, which is the Interactive Advertising Bureau, did a study with PricewaterhouseCooper where they said 55% of programmatic advertising budgets go to all the technology layers in between. And so if you're wondering why nothing is being done very seriously about an $8.2 billion problem every year, it's because 55% of the money goes to the white collar companies that actually serve the ads. And so, you know, this is a little bit tongue in cheek, but it's a very real thing is if you look at the ANA estimate based on that 55%, $3.9 billion a year is fueling legitimate ad tech companies. IAB estimate would say 4.5%. Company called AdLooks came out with a report this year that said 12.5 billion every year. That means 6.8 billion is going to legitimate ad tech companies. And then there's a company here in San Francisco, Distill Networks, that their estimate was 18.5 billion. And that would mean 10.1 billion is going to ad tech companies every year. If all that money disappears, a lot of these companies disappear. And so because these companies are incentivized on the volume and the quantity, there's not a lot of movement on getting rid of it. It all comes down to cleaning up the supply chain, and you can see why certain companies would be resistant to that because they know that's a big part of their revenue model. 
So this is the only illustration I can find that really makes sense of this whole thing, is we keep talking about fraudsters and fraudsters and hackers, but it's actually the executives within ad tech that are benefiting the most, because these technology layers for serving the ads make most of the money. And advertisers control the ecosystem, but they don't really know what to do. They're being told one thing by the press, one thing by their agencies. Their agencies like, don't worry about it. It's all good. We have this problem handled. We have this filter in place, and it's telling us that fraud is 2%. And if you talk to these bot detection companies, and this is one of the most insane things that I've seen, is agencies will do what's called a bake-off. And so they say, okay, we're going to audition bot detection vendors. We're going to have you guys, three, four companies, we're going to have you scan the same traffic. You report what rate of fraud you find, and then we'll pick which one we like the best. And surprise, surprise, they generally pick the one with the lowest fraud number. So clients, what do we want? We don't know, but we want it right now. So everybody wants a fix, but nobody wants to really do anything about it. And the reason I think this is important for the software engineering community is they, most of the time when I talk to companies engaged in mass fraud, the engineers actually have no idea what's being done. They're sitting there, they're solving the technical problems every day, they're figuring out solutions every day. Most of them don't realize how that technology is being used in the market. I've spoken to engineers at you know, web publishers that have 300 million ad impressions a day, and they don't actually realize that it's being monetized in a fraudulent method. So everything is built on what software engineers do. You know, there's always some business guy in the spotlight, you know, taking credit for what the company does, but none of it can be done without the engineering backbone. And so the reason, again, that advertising fraud is so important is so many startups, especially in the Silicon Valley, San Francisco area, get focused on, oh, we're going to build a user base. We have this many users. This is our projection. What's the point of a user base? It's to sell advertising eventually. And so this constant cycle gets fueled more and more by this business model. And that's it. So. I want to ask him a couple questions, and then we'll do total audience questions. I think we're working on another mic, but so just a, a quick background on how I met Shalin. I think after I started doing the podcast, where I, somebody introduced us, I think, but I had been looking to do shows about advertising fraud because I worked very briefly at an advertising company, at an ad tech company, and it only took like about a month to kind of understand that something was off about the way that the company worked and the way that it made money. And I left that company not long after. And in the intervening years between then and now, I've just learned as much about the advertising ecosystem as I could. And the more you look into it, the spookier and it just doesn't make any sense how it works. So my first question is, you're describing this arbitrage where basically a fraudster can pay for traffic that comes from a data center that's very cheap because all, all it's doing is visiting a web page and that web page is also owned by the fraudster and the fraudster is running ads on that web page 
how far can I take that business model and how much money can I make as an individual who is simply setting up websites like eCelebNews or BeefRecipes.com, running ads on it, and paying for super cheap traffic? That sounds like a great arbitrage. How, how far can I take that? So my experience and the reason I know what I do about this industry is I used to work for a fraudulent network that created tons of sites and used to arbitrage traffic between exchanges. When I started there, we were doing about $500 of profit a day, and I was the first employee you know, at a startup. Surprise, you know, looked like a great position. I was the first employee at a digital advertising startup. And so I started, and they were doing $500 a day, and by the end, just me, me spinning up random sites, selling traffic through it, $80,000 of profit a day. I have no technical expertise. I used an open source ad server. I would buy traffic, sell it into the exchanges, and all the exchanges that we sold to would take me out to lunch every two weeks because we're making them so much in ad serving fees. And the account managers there don't have an incentive to report it because their bonus is tied to the revenue that their clients generate. So the easing of traffic that I showed is four-tenths of a cent per click. The traffic I used for eCelab News was one-tenth of a cent per click. So you can buy for 100, sell for 500. You can buy for 100, make 250. It really just depends on if you get the right demand source from the ad exchanges and you get the quality, cheap traffic. So I want to ask one other question with the audience. But the two highest margin businesses in Silicon Valley are Google and Facebook. These are advertising companies. Do you have any idea how much money Google and Facebook are making off of advertising fraud? No, I don't. What was that? No, I don't. He doesn't. Okay. All right, audience questions. <laughs> so obviously, if they're able, the people generating traffic are able to like send their data through those filters, then they can generate label, supervised uh, label training data. But if somehow the clients are incentivized to opt into some program, like some type of certification, like if the clients like you give them and they start to demand this from you know the, the vendors, the different vendors, and then they see a way to differentiate themselves by belonging to this program, is that, is that one way? There's I mean there's all types of certifications. But yeah, I mean, there's I trying to see a path like what what I feel advertisers need is, you know, it's not insanely resource intensive to build your own bot detection, even some basic bot detection, but, but at least you have your own internal baseline. You know, it's, it's very strange to have two companies come in and say, I detect 22% fraud, we detect 48% fraud. You have nothing to compare it to. So if you have your own baseline that says, let's say 30% fraud, you know that there's something off about the 22 that's detecting less. So if you need a lot of, like I've heard through, through several of the interviews, like there was certain domain knowledge that would instantly, you would know that there's a problem, like red flags with, with your, your tracking. But if people just build their own models for classifying fraud, not fraud, or like some probability, then those people can't run it through your filter because you are the But they'll, they'll change to fit. You know, if they need to have 30% returning visitors, they'll create 30% returning visitors. So it's mostly about changing the business practices of not onboarding every single site that comes to the ad exchange. Okay. 
it's you know it's a supply chain problem. I'm, I'm just trying to figure it out for like the the consumer of the ads. Like let's say you run some SaaS business, or, or like some business where you have advertising. Yeah. Actually, I need to rethink that. Okay. So when you use the word fraud as opposed to like dishonesty, it seems like you're trying to imply actionability. There has been no legal consequences yet. Yeah. So it sounds like arms race level. Like no matter what solution you create, they're gonna figure it out for person. Around. So, do you see it popping soon? Like, what, what do you see going forward? Yes. <laughs> I do see it popping. Why? Why? Because advertisers are getting smarter. Yeah. The only reason that this has continued is because advertisers haven't been paying attention. They've had this inherent trust in the media that they buy. And they're slowly and slowly starting to realize that, hey, maybe we should do our own digging. Yeah. I don't understand why the free market doesn't weed out these foolish advertisers that you're saying. Like, say I'm like, I don't know, Coca-Cola or somebody. I'm paying an ad company money to sell, you know, Coke ads on some somebody's blog. But nobody, nobody who clicks through to that is actually buying any Coca-Cola because they're just bots, and bots don't actually buy stuff. Why would I keep throwing money at an ad agency that doesn't actually deliver paying customers? So you're still getting paying customers, whether they're organic, whether some like 10% of them are from your advertising campaigns, but now you have this ROI that you attribute to the money that you spend on advertising. And that's what's fueled this. So people say, I get X return from spending a million dollars on online advertising. And as long as I get that next year, the model works. So with Coca-Cola, most advertisers don't have a direct response you know, analysis of, I spent this much, how much should I get? How much is each sale worth? Coca-Cola is not selling six packs of Coke cans online. They're doing brand awareness. No, but like there's so many advertisers that just do brand awareness. You know, it, car companies, you know, food companies, you know, nobody's buying Oreos online, but you'll see ads for Oreos, and they just want to make sure, you know, this whole thing in advertising is called share of voice. They want to make sure that they're not being outshined by their competitor. So if I'm Toyota, if I see Suzuki is buying more ads than I am, I'm going to start spending more because I want to have my share of voice in the market. And the big companies also, strictly speaking, it's actually good. Because the race to the bar is the Yeah, right. Think about it. If you have to spend $1 to get a customer, and that doubles because of fraud, that means the smaller guys get a connection with the young kids. You're a good guy. Yeah. So, I mean, that might partially answer my question, but I remember the first dot com bubble burst. It was sort of a similar conversation where they said, eyeballs don't really matter. So, why hasn't that whole payment model changed? We don't pay for money. Because not everybody's measuring results online. You can fake clicks, it's not just you know ads. Like you can fake. We only pay for sold products. We won't pay for anything else that somebody else That's that's great. It's something you're not part of the market. it's like a different segment of the market. Then I mean, think of car companies, food companies, Coca Colas, 
you know, every so many YouTube pre-roll ads are some dancing music commercial for a Pepsi. You know, they're not looking at, oh, did this person go into 7-Eleven and buy a can of Pepsi? Like, there's no way for them to measure that. It's all just about brand but awareness for them. For, we were at a panel just three weeks ago yeah. with Walmart, Sam's Club. Yeah. Their whole metric was, we, and they were talking about for their apps, yeah. getting members to use the app. Yeah. They even put in special incentives, and Amazon does this too, yeah. for, all right, if you sign up and buy it through this, we'll give you a discount. So they're tracking. But the problem is, just like you said earlier, if I'm a mode to hit others, I want to be in the top five of the app downloads. Yes. I'm using it as a mode against a small person, and I have a big enough budget yeah. that I don't want to spend a lot less. Right. So the disincentive is if I can put a mode even of fake traffic between them yeah. and can show that it is converting to a certain amount of membership, which is a ROI calculation, yeah. I don't really care. Right. And the guy from Walmart actually said, he's like, yeah, I can have it's like, like they were like, yeah, there's a lot of art, but I don't care. Yeah. Because I'm spending this much, I'm getting this much growth, right. and then the model works for us. Yeah. That's their mentality. Yeah. Do you know how much of registration the monitoring process have to have? Could that be changed by having registration for the ads that show? Registration for the advertiser or the publisher? The user. The user. Let's say that you have to log in. Yeah. Um, no, no web publisher wants to limit their ad opportunities to logged in users. But there was a discussion about login for like after you click through the ad. Sure. To access yeah. it, and it had some friction. I, I actually work at a company where you have to, to register. Yeah. You even have to provide your social security number. Oh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I mean that that would eliminate a lot of the fraudulent visits, but. Question you guys, question: What's your conversion rate? And what are you buying? What are you getting clicks on? I would guess that there are a lot of those sort of free logging elements behind that. That's pretty big. Using the opposite, using it as an ad that you click through, there's an actual login in your social network. And that was one thing they said: the brand advertisers had to get three times the bang on social network content share versus in a straight ad that they go to conversion. So they were saying, don't buy impressions. This is in apps for hyper growth. Even if it's video ads or web view ads, don't buy impressions. So you can pay content out there. So it's the opposite. Maybe there's a niche thing, but social security number on a login? Yeah, no, they'll never. I don't care what the site is, I'll never have it. So let's do, let's do a few more questions and then we'll go to Susan. And then we'll take a break. To you and then to see but I see that question. Yeah, in terms of like the relative sophistication on both sides of the arm race, I'm sure you saw the report about that like, very sophisticated operation. Was making millions of dollars a day. Methbot. Meth, yeah, yeah. Great name, Methbot. And then on the other side, you have the, as I assume, like Google, who can you know produce AI that can be a human Go player, can weed out some of these bots. Like, you know, are those the top tiers of sophistication? I mean. I would say that Google and WideOps, was, who is a company that released that report, are probably at the higher end of sophistication. But again, just basic theoretically, like they're always going to be one step behind in the long run. It's like antivirus and viruses. You know, like you never stop getting updates for your antivirus system because the guys that create viruses will always figure out some workaround. Yeah, so you mentioned a couple of bot detection methods you were using. There was a big delta in how well it performed. Do you know what accounts for that delta? Sampling. 
So that's the big thing that they tried to use that as an excuse or a justification for the wildly different numbers because on the same traffic that's coming to the same site, one was 90%, 52%, 40%, and 17%. And part of that is the methodology of their bot detection. Part of that is the traffic vendors were targeting two of those companies as passing their filters. But the rest of that is to save money and to sell smaller packages, smaller cost packages to their customers. Bot detection companies will say, we're going to sample 10% or we're going to sample 5% to be able to sell them a package that's cheaper, be able to have that customer. But the problem is samples are only good if they're representative of the population. And if you're taking these impressions as they come with 10%, one every 10, you don't actually know if it ends up being representative of the sample. And that's the reason that they have such wide disparities between them. Cool. All right. Thanks, y'all.